This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Denise. Eden, and I am joined by Mawera Karatai in Fakatani. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? Very well. What's your plan for the weekend? Um, mountain biking, just for something completely different. Uh, so Jack is Jack's uh, racing at Onipu. We've got what's called the King of Zephyr, uh, which is a big bike race. And of course, he's got Ames Games coming up. So we're off to Summerhill to do some more training there. You know, I'm just mountain biking. How about you? I'm off to Queenstown for a swim in the lake. Oh, lovely. Ooh, there, that's is gonna be sn- cold. there is snow forecast. Oh, so you'll but, be dodging icebergs or becoming uh, one. So I hope I'm back here on Monday. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> You've got all the recording equipment. <laughs> <laughs> and who are we introducing today? Today it is my great pleasure to introduce Professor Hugh Campbell from Otago University. Hugh is the Chair in Sociology, Gender Studies and Criminology from the School of Social Sciences and the Professorial Researcher for the Centre of Sustainability. Gosh, that sounds very fancy, Hugh. Welcome. Kia ora You're much fancier than it really is. Um, yeah, but thanks. It's uh, lovely to be here and uh, get a chance to share, share in the bubble. So welcome, Hugh. Where are you, Hugh? It looks suspiciously like a university office. True, true. I'm exactly where we weren't in lockdown, which is down in my office in the great citadel of the Richardson Building in the middle of Otago University campus. But looking out towards the beautiful Otago Polytechnic and Otago Harbour, and there's uh, just one building that carefully disguises the stadium, so I don't get to see that, and that's probably a good thing. Can you bring yourself to call it the Richardson Building and not the Hocken Building? Yeah, look, it's been uh, it's been a journey, Sam. Um, yeah, I mean, as someone who who lived in it as the Hocken Building for ten years, it was emotionally brutal to have to change. <laughs> Until I saw the nameplate and the and the sort of the legend on the front and discovered that the person we were named after was called John Cheese Richardson. <laughs> which uh, after that, I thought, well, we should really have called it the Cheese Richardson Building. So we're asking people how their bubble life was, which is now turning into history but we're asking you anyway how was your bubble life look um as as a sociologist um there, there are moments in your life where you think everything uh, is, is operating according to known parameters it's all rolling in a particular direction and suddenly you, you feel like you get thrown into the middle of a massive sociological experiment so yeah yeah i, I mean apart, i i I think at a personal level, um, if you reflect on it critically through a sociological lens, um, you know, my wife and I hung out in the beautiful suburb of uh, Opoho in, um, in, our, in our lovely house because you didn't housing markets allowed affordable purchasing of houses for decades and lived a life of extraordinary middle class comfort. Um, and it was really just that signal lesson of how in moments of shock or stress, you 
you you really get a pretty stark look at your own privilege. And, and it was worrying to me that there was a lot of it. Uh, and the sense of being able to nestle nestle in your your little house. And I, I got to do all sorts of things I loved, like jigsaw puzzles. And, uh, you know, tune into Jacinda at 1 p.m. And it was extraordinarily easily achievable, which is quite worrying. At the start of the pandemic, the... Secretary of Education, I think it was, I think her name was Halstead, said that the pandemic doesn't cause inequities, it just reveals them. Was she proven right, do you think? Yeah, totally. Uh, and I think, you know, the the social scientists of New Zealand and, and many other people in policy circles and other political circles, really, it's been a, it's been a rude awakening, um, just how big the divides turned out to be. Um, you know, t- take away, you know, take away Dunedin's uh, nightclubbing scene, uh, its uh, live live sports events and the like, and uh, throw us all back into the places we live. And suddenly it was an extremely inequitable community and, and the out- outcomes are extraordinary. And even, even amongst university staff, I mean, I think demographically, the experience of lockdown was so different for people. And, and you know, in, in one of my roles down here, I had to keep tabs on how people were going in terms of their research activities. And Look, there were some people who were in similar situations to myself who found this to be like an extra sabbatical and, and went through this burst of amazing productivity. And then there were the people with school-aged children and who just experienced the opposite. And we are actually still going through that. Uh, that um, it, what, and I think in terms of inequities, I mean, it's not where you really should start in terms of understanding New Zealand's inequities, but particularly for early career women uh, with school-aged children, um, where suddenly these incredibly finely balanced uh, demands between demanding professional work and also being expected to, to run a home and, and, and maintain the kids and all this kind of thing just got brutally exposed and, and, and people had a really tough time. As against those who just wrote it out. Um, so that at, that's at the sort of the immediate level and that's not even getting into the way in which we discovered what you know policy folk have known for years but you know, have, have, have spoken into an unhearing darkness that our public health and primary health infrastructure is an absolutely tattered and torn fabric of patches and broken stitches. We've been massively underfunding a whole lot of our social infrastructure for decades, uh, particularly since the 1980s. And yeah, there it was, all out on display, still is. And yeah. Were so. we knowingly blinkered? Oh, yes. Um, and, and I think um, it's that great um, trade-off you have in democratic societies like New Zealand, where, you know, I, we are a nominally democratic society, but enormously dominated by a very large middle class, and particularly a very large white middle class. And so the electoral equation of low taxes, which proved to be a winning formula for election after election since the 1980s, um, really just means that your social infrastructure and your physical infrastructure is going to get slowly, slowly degraded. Uh, and then, you know, if if the current government isn't going to place a Medicare levy on or some kind of tax to pay off the massive rebuild effort on our healthcare system alone, I can't see who will. Um, and so, you know, everyone who, every white middle class homeowner in New Zealand who enjoys those low taxes and those amazing property capital gains, um, there's a lot, there's a lot of reasons why invisible stuff can just stay invisible. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Moana Maniapoto, Io Ana. Why this one? Uh, I I love uh, the recent work she's been doing. Um, and it's... It's the I, I have a I'm, I'm, I'm part of my privileged life is um, 
uh, is that I, I get to be a visiting professor in Norway. Well, prior to COVID, it was two weeks a year, and then it was uh, a series of frantic Zooms per year with colleagues in Norway. But uh, it's very interesting going to Norway, very similar country to New Zealand in a lot of in a lot of ways, geographically similar area, similar size population, similar balance of very strong primary industries and tourism versus a sort of a smaller but emergent sector, but in other ways completely different. Uh, and, and the, you know, Norway is a social democratic society uh, for most people in Norway. And it's, um, you know, they pay very high taxes. They have extremely high government services. And so in that sense, I look at it and go, this is what New Zealand could be. But then the other side of Norway is that Norway has absolutely devastatingly atrocious race relations. And uh, it's an extremely, it, it, it sees itself as an extremely white society. And so the place of Sami in uh, Norway has been really, is really challenging. And I have a very close friend and colleague uh, um, who's Naitahu, who goes over there once a year as well to teach at a university there. And he says, you know, really for him, the connection between the nature, he said, you know, for him being able to take lessons from New Zealand about treaty and partnership and that to Norway, for, for Sami, just it's this incredibly encouraging and inspiring story of, of trying to find better, trying to find your way and trying to find a place to stand. And so when I saw that, uh, Moana had done a uh, collaboration with absolutely legendary Sami singer Mara Boini. I thought, oh, no, this is—I've got to hear this. I've got to hear this, and, it, and I just thought it was amazing to feel that sense of connection uh, between two really, really interesting positions. And you know, I think between Maori and Sami, there are just two very different political places, but really meaningful dialogue that's happening there.
During 2020, you published a book. I did. I did. Bad timing or good timing, depending <laughs> on how you Did it get you out of having to go and talk to everybody about it? Um, I think a lot of people, um, yeah, no, interestingly put there, Sam. Um, I think uh, I was nervous about how some of the content of that book would land. Um, and so I, I you know, the, a, a sort of a timid micro launch in, in, at the end of 2020 was kind of how, how it felt. And as, as long as the reviews all went out on the academic press, um, no one would notice that it was this somewhat pungent uh, critique of New Zealand's colonisation by farms. Um, so, uh, but then since then, I guess that yeah, I mean, since uh, since the book came out, um, I've had to sort of had to come out myself a little bit as well, um, particularly around the emergence of Groundswell. Um, now, if I'd written the book, if I'd finished the book after Groundswell had started, it just would have been exactly the appropriate moment in which the sort of like a whole lot of political and whole lot of political currents are kind of culminating. Uh, but no, I sort of had to come out a little bit more and, and, and say what I thought and what I thought the long term historical dynamics in New Zealand farming were both in terms of colonisation and then the challenge of decolonisation. That's a long and rambling way to say, yeah, low key launch. Um, but it's yeah, it's been an interesting journey since then. Have you had good feedback? Yeah, academically, I, I we, we are having a big moment internationally. Um, I, I, I'm in an area that we would broadly call agri, critical agri-food studies, so everything to do with agriculture and food that comes through the social sciences like sociology, anthropology, geography, uh, the more critical and uh, thinking end of economics. Um, and I think there's been, I mean, it's a, it's a real hot, there's been a real hotbed of critical scholarship. Uh, quite a lot of left left leaning scholarship for decades, and boy, it's a target rich environment. Uh, our global food system, but I think in the last five years, there's been much more. You know, there's been a sort of a moment in which thought has turned towards colonisation and decolonisation, and I think this is really just a side effect of the fact that in a lot of international academic discourse, it's very dominated out of Europe and the UK, um, where colonisation is a harder thing to think of over there one of the reasons why that Sami relationship in Norway is so interesting. Um, and and in, in the United States, where, you know, in terms of political dynamics in the States, the dynamics of colonization are just one of many horrifically complicated dynamics. So I think it's interesting that I, I sat down about, well, I, I spent four years writing the book, but I sat down early on in that process. And Bruce Pascoe had just written Dark Emu about Australia and about the way in which the colonization of Australia had involved this this really systematic process of erasing the way in which Aboriginal people had farmed the land. And I looked, I remember looking and going, you know, those Australians, aren't they atrocious? <laughs> <laughs> and thinking, I'm sure, you know, I'm just going to think about my own family's farms for a while and think, I'm sure it's not that bad. And then you sort of start, slowly you start, the moment you start looking into those invisible worlds, suddenly a whole lot of stuff starts becoming visible and you think, oh, okay. So 
Yeah, internationally, I think uh, people sort of say, oh, this colonization thing, this colonization and decolonization thing is interesting. You've got going on over there. Uh, but in New Zealand, I, yeah, it's, it's the, the book is positioned in, in a particular kind of way. I mean, I, I've really tried to write it from the, so, so just sort of the potted summary. I use six of my own Pakeha forebears farms uh, as the place to write about the nature of farm-based colonization and what that caused, what that did, and where it's, where we've ended up. And it's, it's most definitely not supposed to be the single definitive account of colonization because it's written by a, the son of six generations of Pakeha farmers about Pakeha farms. But it's it's like, for me, there were a whole lot of really important voices starting to emerge or had been emerging out within uh, Maori accounts of changing land use and farming. And, you know, there's some really hugely significant work out there, you know, the, the great sort of work of Sir Hugh Carfer and people like that, that had always just been out there as something that was a, a point of interest for other people's histories. But then when I began writing my own Pākehā farm history, it's like it's like you suddenly go, hold on a second, how, how come our farm history was such a partial and weird and truncated thing in terms of the way in which we think about it? How come it was never couched in terms of these wider dynamics of colonisation? And what? And so the, the title of the book is Farming Inside Invisible Worlds. And it's like, how did we end up with this Pākehā farming world where a whole lot of other worlds just got invisible? Hey, so it was it was interesting, and I, and I think as a result, um, I don't expect the book to be something that you know the current generation of uh, young decolonizing Maori scholars will be will feel the need to to cite. I mean, I hope it's encouraging for them, but it's more a case of you're trying to shift the needle in terms of how Pakeha understand their own farming history. That's what that's the political project I'm in, and that's that. That's that's proving to be quite a challenging task. <laughs> you contrast to the you contrast the modern farm or the modernist farm. Yeah. The what do you describe it as a good term? Uh, grass producing machine running at maximum speed. You yeah. contrast that with a sort of more ecological approach. And the quote that I really like is: "The modernist farm has become a free floating vessel in an ahistorical sea." Yeah. That it's completely divorced from that. But what you've just pointed out, and I was going to make that link, but you did it for me, is that it's not in an apolitical sea. The link to groundswell and things, does it come from that same place? Yes. And um, I think that the great magic that was performed in New Zealand farming through the middle of the 20th century is that we managed to somehow... I mean, well, the first thing is we converged on one farming system uh, for the landscape. And so the great, so I grew up on a, on a pastoral farm in the Waikato and, you know, we, we were, you know, we were running sheep and beef. Uh, all our neighbours were dairy farmers. And it's like, so within 500 metres of the house we were living in was the entire farming model for most of the New Zealand landscape. Um, and ha the story, I mean, we just assumed that this was the natural and normal thing to do on landscape. You know, we, we are pastoral farmers and we have grass based farming and um, and we and we are the we are the best at it in the world, of course. Um, and so when you go back into that sort of there really is this big political project that begins to assemble around the 1920s through the 1950s, where a huge variety of things were happening in New Zealand. Um, and even leaving aside the, the great diversity and, and strengths of Maori farming and land use that were just slowly being crunched and marginalised and pushed to the, the margins until you sort of reached this sort of state of utter desperation in the 1920s when Sir Apiranga Ata, you know, arrives and says, what, we, we, we've got the launch a rescue mission for Maori farming. Um, but even amongst Pākehā farmers, there was this enormous diversity of farming styles. And they were all, by the 1920s, sort of, it's all sitting on top of this absolutely collapsing landscape. 
and you know the hillsides are washing away all the bush has been taken away so none of the hillsides are hold well they hold for long enough as long as the root systems haven't rotted away but as soon as the root systems are rotting away it's all collapsing and so by the 1920s you've got this um, incredible ecological catastrophe that's unfolding which is really the last of after the political and the cultural catastrophe of colonization you've then got the ecological catastrophe that we live with now and the great scientific solution for New Zealand the grasslands revolution as it was known you know creates this modernist farm very tight boundaries very known parameters you know very specifically targeted species particular kind two kinds of grass particular kind of fertilizer very particular kinds of species that are going to graze on it and they they replicate this farm and it kind of holds the whole show together through the middle of the 20th century um and so it becomes just sort of natural and normal in the world i grew up in is this is this modernist world which is you know farms are about science farms are about technique and technology farms are about key sheep breeds uh, and grass pasture mixes and you know calculating fertilizer applications and you know the, the, through writing the book i got to sort of ponder back on what i had grown up is that it was this a historical world there was just no history before our farming and we couldn't even anymore see the the, the ecological crisis that we would we, we had tried to solve with pastoral farming it just it disappeared from view and we just became this thing that sat inert apolitical ahistorical acultural and i think you know as i it was it was not easy writing about you know the, the my own family's farms and the farm i grew up on is sort of like when you realize and it wasn't really until i sat down to realize when i was writing the book and i was looking at photos aerial photos of the old farm and going oh my god two-thirds of that farm was kaikatea wetland they got cut down and drained into those flat beautiful flat pastures you know and the bush was cut off the little hills that were around the side of our farm and it's like there was an entire invisible kind of ghost world that had been there and ecologically it's always wanting to go back to that and so i think yes and it's a very long way of saying you know that that modernist farm both stabilized a landscape that was falling apart due to colonization but it also successfully performed other forms of magic which made all history all political context all culture and and diversity disappear and it's an incredibly powerful place to grow up and for people who've grown up in that it has consequences in terms of how you feel about the present. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokadui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui ki a koutou ko tā I hope you're all having the best day beautiful superstars and your beloved universes. And I really hope wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique and here making things better. Thank you. Now I know that for us all we've had to navigate an entirely new landscape over the last more than two and a half years. We've had to develop such resilience and such self-control, such belief and, and hope and faith and courage in the face of very challenging circumstances. And of course it's so important that we give ourselves and each other the love and support and compassion that we so desperately need. I 
know that for many people this time has really been a time of struggle. I think it has for us all. And when we are able to speak with each other about this and share this, it can really help to enable us to feel supported, part of a community, and not alone in our experience. And I think this is crucial in terms of our next adventure together, which is of course navigating a new landscape of returning many aspects of our lives and having to adjust other aspects. Something that I think has happened for everybody is there has been more of an opportunity for self-reflection. And this can have many, many flow-on effects, some of which can be very challenging if the reflection is not held in balance. And the reason I say this is because I have experienced this myself in these periods of isolation and in these periods of so many aspects of my life changing, my work, my music, all these things, my relationships, all these things have been changed by the pandemic. And when we are identified with these aspects of our lives, and when we treasure them and we hold them so dear to us, of course they're changing and they're shifting and they're realigning. It's very difficult to deal with. And so I have realized that it's important to allow myself to really let go of any unhelpful criticisms or judgments, any self-beration, any unfortunate negative perspectives and just be as kind as I can to myself and at all times allow myself to be open to the new when interacting with others to listen to them and their perspectives and their perceptions of me and their perceptions of themselves and see that other ways of doing being seen feeling are possible even at times when I felt the challenges are insurmountable, I can't see a way to work through them. By speaking with others and hearing their experiences, I have been able to find new strategies. And this is not an immediate process. This is often a process that requires some time for processing and germination of these ideas. And so that self-reflection is so important as part of this process. And of course, throughout our lives, we're learning more and more all of these skills and how to hold them in an equilibrium that nourishes us. And of course, for me, being part of the show is really helpful for that. So of course, a huge thank you to Sam and the whole Blown Bubbles team for having me. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kaikite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Hugh Campbell. Hugh, you were talking before about Groundswell. Um, earlier today, I was uh, reading an advertisement for a, um, a politician who's coming to the Eastern Bay to talk about democracy. 
and they were quite involved in the whole groundswell thing. And uh, and I read all of the comments that came under it from supporters of that person. And what I, what I realised reading through it is that somehow along the way, our definition of democracy has become messed up. Democracy is no has become about I'm right because this is what I believe and you're wrong and you're not listening to me and acknowledging my rights to have my opinion, but I don't actually care about your rights to have your opinion. And somehow along the way, we've lost this um, the collective knowledge, the collective understanding, uh, the the collective moving forward. And and I just wonder where what's happened here. What do you think has happened? Yeah, and I mean, I think it's you know the current moment we're living through, where we're having this turn towards a sort of a, a turn towards a, a slightly more toxic libertarianism and uh, and, and the exertion of rights. Um, is you know it reminds you that you know what people have always said about democracy is it's like it's the worst system of government except for all the other ones, um, and that the the critical danger of democracy, which is democratic processes, which in their own way try to represent all constituencies, is that it does become the tyranny of the fifty one percent, and and it, it works in that classic British liberal sense. Um, if that fifty one percent is the fifty one percent that's a coalition assembled out of a diversity of points of view and political positions and arguments and ideas, but if that fifty one percent is composed of a another identity like a racial identity or a cultural identity, then democracy becomes an incredibly uh, oppressive system of government, um, which is why I think it is one of the reasons why New Zealand has always been such an interesting country, and particularly in, in you know, the last 50 years. Um, yeah, I mean, we're clocking through some really interesting 50-year anniversaries at the moment of that big shift that happened in the 70s. And I constantly, you constantly have to fall back on New Zealand that despite what these um, sad characters uh, driving their tractors around the place might might fear, the massive gift that was that was given to New Zealand by history was the gift of political partnership. Uh, you know, of all the countries in the British Empire, the one that kind of got gifted a political institution that's more social democratic and, and European in style um, and and more collaborative. And so, you know, when I hear the call for more democracy, I'm actually not hearing democracy. It's more assertion of uh, assertion of basic rights and libertarianism, which really is the last thing New Zealand could do with. Um, yeah. So those 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 groundswell guys, you know, they they, you know, if I if I'd been if I've been an absolute freaking genius and thought to write an epilogue to my book, which was what's going to happen next, you know, it could have been about what will the backlash politics look like against decolonization. But I didn't because I'm, I'm a genius in hindsight, like most of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the, the backlash politics to decolonization, I think it's not and it's not just decolonization, but it's this it's this loss of the sense in which a particular kind of farming industry and a particular kind of farming person was the natural and normal decision maker about what happened in New Zealand's landscape. And that, I mean, that held us the norm for so long that any loss of that sense of like, we are entirely in charge of what goes on here really hurts these people. Uh, and, and it feels terrible. Um, yeah, I don't know how much you want me to go into groundswell, but there's a lot more you could say. One of the things that I've observed through all of this is this real absence of critical thinking. Uh, and because of that, there's also an unwillingness to consider another person's perspective. And But then I was thinking about it today and I wondered, is there an absence of critical thinking now or is it just that I'm aware of it for the first time? Have we Are we actually going backwards in that space or has it always been this bad? Um, 
Yeah, I think um, there there are some. I mean, definitely. I mean, if I put my wider sociological uh, lens into play, then there's there's been a lot of places in New Zealand where there has been dire institutionalised racism that just wasn't visible. But I I don't know whether farming. I don't know whether that would entirely capture the thing that's happened with farming because the crisis for a lot of Pakeha farmers is is a loss of privilege, and, and that's a real loss of privilege. They are less privileged than they were 30 or 40 years ago, and they have a lot less access to political power. Back, back, and, and partly that was because we went to MMP. I mean, back under first past the post, one political party could win power in the New Zealand government, and Sir Robert Muldoon did multiple times, on the back of a string of marginal rural electorate. And so, uh, you know, a minority of the country could really, and one industry, could dominate New Zealand politically and have seamless political influence. And it went right from, you know, who got, who got elected to sit in Parliament right through to, you know, who was on the wool board and the meat board and various other, you know, government organised, quasi-government organisations, who went to the schools, you know, who grew up on which generation of which farm. And they all just blended together seamlessly in this large matrix of influence. And that really has changed. Uh, it's changed since the 1980s in terms of New Zealand's massive economic diversification. Um, it's 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 changed since MMP came along, and and the, it's just I, it was a startling election when Jenny Shipley took over and fought the first election against Helen Clark, with the National Party actually having to campaign for suburban Auckland voters for the first time, and, and it changed the nature of our politics. and And that was only in the you know that was only in the 1990s, and so you can sort of see what I see with the groundswell guys because they mainly are guys and older guys at that, um, is that sense of a world in which politics was effortless, you didn't have to worry about that stuff, you were being looked after, your kind of people were in charge, are being boxed. You're just feeling, it's, it's not that they're being boxed into a corner, but the fact that there's anything boxing at all, anything framing their actions or anything, just feels terrible. I, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of... Um, sort of things that are now thankfully an artefact of history. But in the 1970s, as second wave feminism was uh, gaining steam, there, came, there, there was this kind of weird genre of counter backlash politics where real blokes would get together and do blokey things as a form of anti-feminist politics, celebrating their blokiness. And look back at it now, it's just sort of hilarious. <laughs> but we sort of feel like in farming, we're in the same moment. We said, stuff, something's come along they don't like, and they're kind of, they're acting out, but I, I don't that the logic. Well, I mean, I see the historical and cultural logic behind it, but the actual specific logics of what get uh, what's getting argued don't really make much sense. We can take people on a journey to change that, though. There's always the opportunity for change, but it's trying to find the right way to get people to shift from that position and to yeah. want to be on the journey. What does that look like? Yeah. So no. Okay. Let's. So this is what the podcast is really about. <laughs> we got there. Um, so I think so. I'm I'm about to have my 28th anniversary as a, as an academic at the University of Otago, and it's, it's my time really since I came back to New Zealand and began studying agriculture and alternative agriculture and things that were changing. And we are in a dramatically different world to what where things were positioned three decades ago. And it's on a whole lot of very small but very significant fronts. 
other ways have become possible and other ways of thinking about what can be done on land and other little little bits of land use uh, and ways of doing things have started to happen and sort of the entire back end of my book is looking into the five the five kind of key free key fracture lines that began to fracture and break open uh, the possibilities and what had otherwise been a very monolithic modernist approach to agriculture and even even this absolutely sort of hilarious but also quite worrying backlash to the country calendar episode from last week and um, showed that, uh, yeah, yeah. Even sometimes it's extremely wealthy people buying trophy sheep stations and how we start trying unusual stuff and it melts people's heads. But then other people push back and say, hey, look, now we have to start thinking about this stuff. So I think there's a whole lot of places where somehow we began to think and act differently in terms of how we do farming in New Zealand. And yeah, um, uh, well, how so much do you want there me a- to go into that? Is there a way forward for those modernist monolithic farmers? Uh, well, or a way back, perhaps? Yeah, in terms of the discussions that you and I were, would have and would have in our classes a lot. I mean, the, I mean, whilst they're facing certain political forces that are slowly boxing them in, and they're facing massive changes in consumer sentiment, and and they're facing you know export organisations that you know will eventually, whether we want to maintain that model or not, those organisations are increasingly being sensitised to greening markets. And so will eventually, all those all those things um, will come into play. And I know that they're holding on, hoping that a change of government next year will make it all go away, but it won't because the next government is... Because the reality is underpinning it all is the sense of the ecologically possible and the ecologically impossible. And the great the great experiment in New Zealand, Pakeha farming land use that began in the 1920s with the grasslands revolution, and then has gone through a series of sort of lurches and revolutions and retrograde experiments with intensification since the 1970s and 1980s, has been really just running ahead of a series of ecological collapse dynamics that were unleashed during colonization. At the same time as you've got the big uh, global level effects in terms of, um, you know, uh, the climate crisis. So it's interesting that the people, the people who seem to be doing some quite effective change strategies at the moment are these, these very kind of I wouldn't call them average, but not not radical farmers who've got into regenerative agriculture. And they're not the most radical, but they're really into it. And one of the reasons they're really into it was because their farms just weren't working anymore. And the the suite of strategies they had to maintain pasture, to maintain fertility, to maintain animal health, it just just was stopping working. And so for a whole lot of them, it's like, at, at what point do you say, it's actually permissible now to look outside the local field day or agricultural science center unnamed for this podcast uh you know for the answers i mean and we spent we spent a century in which we were quite comfortable where the answers would come from the government and from government scientists and from a very orthodox narrow view of farming but now we're not the internet social media the way in which social movements have become globalized i mean the the mere fact that uh, people in new zealand can read Charles Massey's Call of the Reed Warbler, or they can read, you know, James Rebanks as an English pastoral, you know, and these sort of these journeys that other farmers have gone through in terms of rethinking their land use. It's just so much easier now. And everyone can share and talk about it online. So in that sense, I sort of think that the, the breaking open of the single monolithic New Zealand farm world has been amazing in the way in which online worlds and social media have done it. It's been incredible. On the other hand, Groundswell is what it is because social media has made a backlash movement much more organisable. 
And we know that the reason why there was so much backlash against the country calendar thing on Lake Hawea Station last weekend was because, you know, it went round a groundswell list. I don't know this, but I'm just assuming this. It went round a groundswell list, you know, and 50 angry people got a got an email or a, or a place they could comment and vent their anger. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's people who are actually engaged on the land who are confronting the limits, the last limits of the big modernist farming trajectory in New Zealand. That's where stuff breaks open. Stuff is going to happen differently. Has the disruption of the pandemic taught us anything in that space? Yeah, um, I think the disruption of the pandemic has taught us many things in many spaces, but um, it's, it's harder to see that immediately in farming because in times of crisis there's always a massive boom in milk powder uh, prices and so in that sense um, the dairy industry's had a great pandemic um, so I, sp- I suppose in a backhanded way if nothing else the pandemic takes away that old that old claim that you know we can't go green if we're in the red it's like guys none of you are in the red at the moment um, but I think um, I mean the pandemic the panic, the, yeah, I, I, I haven't got really good examples. I've been interested to know whether you guys can think of any of things that broke out in the in the farming space. Well, good things that broke out in the farming space during the pandemic. We certainly had some grumpy people feeling neglected and decided to jump on their tractors during the pandemic. Lots of I mean, community, just, lots of communities getting together initially remotely yeah, and then realizing the importance of the community. I think, in, I think, in, in terms of rural communities, that's absolutely right, Sam. And it did, it did remind me that. I think even, well, pandemic politics, community politics, um, groundswell politics really re- reminded me of how, how diverse rural New Zealand is. Uh, it's not that monotonous. It never was that, you know, monotonous um, Pākehā pastoral farm to start with. It just sort of got played that way. But um, it's interesting. I mean, the Ministry of Primary Industries runs a runs a survey every three years or so about how urban, how, how New Zealand's feeling about primary industries. And um the weird thing is, is that urban New Zealand feels pretty good about farming. Actually, it, it has quite a lot of high level of social consent. They just really don't like intensive dairying. Uh, but the group, the group that doesn't like intensive dairying more, the group that's more opposed to intensive dairying than urban New Zealanders in those surveys is other rural New Zealand. And so I think this, the way in which that sort of rural-urban divide stuff plays out is, is just, it's a complete political, it's a, it's a it's a political fiction that gets flogged to, to get people riled up. Um, but I think that, and I think the pandemic did sort of help with that in the sense that it did create this moment in which you get that sense of we're all in, we're all in this together. Um, it does. I mean, for rural, for a lot of rural New Zealand, it doesn't help that we have a Labour government in charge. They that just doesn't feel good. Um, a lot of them are holding on, hoping that a change of government will massively change their fortunes, but it won't because the big climate pressures are not going away. Wish they would, but they're not. Um, the big market drivers around, you know. Uh, I spent my whole life growing up sort of imbibing the doctrine that everything the Europeans did was wrong. Our farming was superior. We had no subsidies. Actually, we did have subsidies. They were just disguised subsidies. Uh, you know, and Europe was just doing it all wrong. And in my in my professional career, you sort of you get incredibly uh, well. You just example after example where actually because Europe's more dense than us, their population is more dense. But with intensive farming systems, they they just kind of hit these ecological crises about 20 to 30 years ahead of us. So the crisis we're waiting, you know, that's slowly going to emerge in Canterbury around contamination of groundwater. 
in, in terms of its human health impacts. You know, that happened in Denmark in the early 1980s. Uh, and so the, the Danish government, which was very sort of supportive of intensive agriculture, had to make this massive lurch uh, towards alternative systems to try and decrease the amount of certain contaminants that agricultural production was putting into the groundwater. And I think, so New Zealand, we just seem to be, we roll about 20 to 30 years behind Europe. You know, the EU created the nitrate directive saying, oh, by the way, we can't have a limited amount of nitrogen going into our groundwater or really bad things happen. We shall create the nitrate directive and put a cap on it. Well, you know, New Zealand's not there yet, but Canterbury's getting close. <laughs> so, yeah, it's all those big, no matter who we get in terms of where, where who's in government at the end of next year, the big drivers internationally, the crunch moments that come will keep happening. The big storms will keep occurring and the floods will keep occurring. The groundwater will continue to be contaminated. Uh, and so, you know, you continue to have to eventually confront these issues. I have some questions to end the show and almost negative time to get through them. So we're going to have to rush. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? The success that I've had. <laughs> oh, look, I was really pleased with a book, um, which helped me. It was it was a hard it was a hard thing to do uh, in terms of having to confront my own family history. But I think it, on the other side of it, it feels it feels different. It feels different about being in this place and how I engage with this place. But that's me personally. But in terms of New Zealand, in terms of New Zealand's successes recently, can I answer that? Oh, without a doubt, Matariki. What a thing it's been. I mean, it, it just took me by surprise. I remember when it came through as a piece of legislation, it's like, oh, yeah, nice idea. We need a kind of midwinter holiday. But even in its very first incarnation, hasn't it grown into something instantly more meaningful? I just loved it. I had a, we, we had a great Matariki. So we are writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What's your superpower? <laughs> yes, uh, it turns out that in 28 years as a professional uh, academic, it turns out I'm very good at talking. <laughs> <laughs> it has been interesting. I mean, I've been able to, I've had a series of invites over the last three years to go and give talks in rural New Zealand. And it's it's a really interesting moment uh, to be going out there and having sincere conversations out there. Much more fun than engaging in social media with the groundswell people. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? I, I'm a very bad activist. I think that you you know you fundamentally see critical, you know, critical social scientific scholarship and teaching is is happily is a form of activism. But I think I was very influenced by an essay that went around the American media about four years ago on political hobbyism, and uh, it was about people who who are very very interested in politics, like me, uh, very interested in a particular positionality in politics, the kind of the left green side of politics, and was about how we'd been sucked into online discussions with each other about politics. And uh, I had done a lot of online writing and I was participating in a big American politics site, and which also was where I saw this piece. And it was basically how a whole lot of voluntary and on the, act, on the ground and campaign teams and that had lost all its membership because everyone was being keyboard warriors and no one was out there anymore. And it really made me think very carefully about my own self and what I had been doing. And so a couple of months later, I, I volunteered to be on a campaign team um and now i'm just getting myself involved in dunedin in my in my third third uh, campaign for the green party so that was quite a big shift for me and it's not a it's, a it's a space that a lot of academics use some kind of academic cover of supposed impartiality to say we don't do that and and i'm learning that actually we can i'm not very good at it but i am enjoying it so what motivates you what gets you out of bed in the morning yeah i think um i do I think uh, there, 
I do have a sense in which I, I have been part of an extraordinarily lucky generation in New Zealand um, that I grew up with a lot of advantages. I was literally, when I finished my master's degree here a long time ago, I was the last year of students before student loans came in. And so there's, in my professional work and also in my personal life with you know two kids in their late 20s, um, you get the sense of, I need to make this count and I need to make an effort because the next group coming behind me are not having the advantages I had. And in that sense, I'm very, very lucky to be a professor in a social science program at a university. It's an enormously privileged job, but it's one I really, really enjoy. And yeah, that gets me out of bed in the morning. Jump on that bike in Opoho and whiz down Signal Hill Road, get down to campus. So what is the biggest challenge or opportunity that you're looking forward to? in the next year or so, riding back up the hill? Riding back up the hill, strangely, is a strange effect that the more you do it, the easier it gets. And so I'm quite pleased. I'm hoping that's going to last for quite a long time before it gets hard again. Um, look, I think the challenge we're all facing at the moment, and, and I, feel, I feel this as much as uh, everyone I talk to and family and that, is that is that the whole world and the whole of New Zealand feels depressed and lethargic at the moment. Um, the, the the back end, you know, the tail end of well, wherever we are in the COVID process, we, we can't get a clean break. We can't move on. We and we're also resisting adjusting to a new normal. And it's an enormously frustrating time. We're living at a time of, of massive political backlash um, in political politics, which is fun if you're looking at right wing governments around the around the world, like Australia, getting biffed out of power. But I think I think we're going to have a grim year politically in New Zealand next year, and uh, potentially end up with um, government with no solutions. But um, yeah, so I think that's the thing we're struggling with at the moment is that you're you're trying to re-energize yourself at a time when personally and collectively everyone is a little exhausted and down at the moment. So, lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Um, well, I think keep listening to Blowing Bubbles. This sounds like a really fun podcast. Um, I think if you're if you're the kinds of people who if you're the kinds of people who enjoy listening to podcasts and that kind of thing and, and have a full and healthy online political life, I, I really challenge people to think about the, the, the crisis of political hobbyism and uh, that we, we are at a moment where even incredibly privileged and abstract thinking university professors have to think about you can no longer simply stay neutral or stay abstract. You, ha- you have to become practical. And I think, I suspect that for most of the listeners of something like Blowing Bubbles, this is just me confessing that finally I've made it to where, you're, where your listeners probably already are. Thank you for that. Moera. Thank you for all of the work that you've done over the years in growing minds and introducing new truths and challenging status quos and all of the other great things that you've done. We need more people like you who are willing to actually put themselves out there and make that happen. And yay for being um, involved in politics because actually social media is is not real. We need people on the ground talking to people, engaging, and that that's where the future is. And so thank you. Thank you for your kindness and your goodness and for being part of our show today. Kia ora. Kia ora. And uh, that's, yeah, that's massively overstating the case for me, but for you guys, thanks very much. I really enjoyed the, uh, the uh, invite and the chance for the conversation. And yeah, yeah, keep it going. Social media is a problem except for this bit. This is a really good thing. <laughs> Authentic. Authentic. <laughs> 
listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Moana Maniapoto and the tribe with Megan Henderson, Maiea. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin with Mawira Karatai in Fakatane and we've been joined from the Richardson Building of Otago University by Hugh Campbell. Uh, that was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. Atewa. Yeah.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.